Thank you for listening to this sermon from Renaissance Church located in Montreal, Quebec. For more information about Renaissance Church, please visit our website, renaissancemtl.com. If you would like to know more about how you can partner up to see the gospel advance in Montreal, please send us an email at renaissance.mtl at gmail.com. Today, uh, today it is my prayer that Jesus would be magnified and that the beauty of Christ would cause true worship to him with our entire lives. Uh, to those who are in need of a Savior, I would invite you to delight in his word today. Let's open up with a word of prayer. Um, Father, we ask that you would be with us today as we hear your word preached. Again, would you uh, open up our hearts to hear your word? Uh, would we... Um, see uh, the depth of our sin, and God, would we see the depth of your love for us today? Um, God, would you be glorified in all that we do? We love you. Pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so today we, again, are continuing in our series in the Gospel of Matthew. If you don't know the Gospel of Matthew, it goes through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And if you're new to this series, uh, what we see in this book is this book emphasizes Jesus as the true king of Israel and his mission to usher in the kingdom of God. All right, so a lot of what we're focusing on in this series is how do we follow Christ and live for his kingdom? What does it mean to, to belong to the kingdom of God? And how do we submit to his rule and his reign in our lives? I'm going to begin just by reading our text for today. Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, Matthew chapter 5 is where we're going to be. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to follow along. Um, if you don't have a Bible, in the back on the Connect table, we do have some Bibles. And uh, you can feel free to, to take one of those and you can keep that. Uh, it's our gift for, for you. So um, again, Matthew chapter 5 is where we're going to be. And we're going to begin in verse 1. This is what it says. It says, seeing the crowds, he, he being Jesus, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. So, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We're going to dive uh, right in here uh, today. Let me begin by catching us up here for a little bit of what we've seen in this series. So last week, uh, as we saw, we saw as Jesus has just called some of his disciples, right? Jesus has called his disciples, and he begins preaching throughout the region of Galilee, right? So on his, his journey, 
what we see is that he's healing people and he begins to attract crowds from Galilee, from the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. So the news about Jesus is spreading quite far. And people from all over the place, they're coming to hear him preach and to be healed. Today, uh, we pick up as, as we just read in Matthew chapter 5. So the next three chapters, chapters 5, 6, and 7, they consist of what is commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount. Um, this is a very famous passage of scripture. Uh, this is probably, uh, or say, this is a sermon that was given by Jesus. And it's probably a sermon that he would have told multiple times as he was traveling throughout Galilee. When Jesus preached this, uh, it's likely that he sat down with his disciples and he probably taught them for over a, a couple of hours. What we have in, in our Bibles here, you could, in, in these three chapters, you could probably read in about 10 or 15 minutes. And so what we have here are kind of like the key points of the sermon. This kind of feels like we got, like he just gave me his sermon outline and, and he's like, okay, go, here's the main points, go from there. Um, and so we just have kind of the, the major points that he taught. So uh, we're going to look at, at Jesus' sermon here. Before we even get into the content of the sermon, though, I want us to notice something here, right? I want to pay, us to, to pay attention to the context. So uh, what I want us to, to point out for us here is that in the life of Jesus so far, what we've seen are there's a couple of connections to Moses that we ought to see, right? There's a couple of connections between Jesus and Moses. So let's take a look. Um, first, in, in chapter 2, we see that following the birth of Jesus, we see that the king in his day makes a decree that all baby boys are to be killed, right? Jesus was providentially delivered from death as a baby. Who else uh, lived in a time where the king decreed that all baby boys were to be killed? You guys can say it. Moses, yes, I gave you the answer already. Um, so that, that is our first connection here. Today, today what we see uh, as well is Jesus, as he goes up a mountain, and he gives his followers God's word. In, in a similar way, Moses went up a mountain, and he came back down to give people God's word. What we see here is Jesus establishing himself as an authority figure like Moses. Right, one who had been chosen to receive the word of God and to give it to God's people. Well, I want us to, to point out one other thing here for today that's significant from the first verse. First verse says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So what's one major thing that's different here than in the story of Moses? There's one key difference here. God's people in this story go up with him. Right? God's people this time get to go up into his presence and receive his word. Where in the story of Moses, one person is allowed to go. Moses, right? Moses is the only one who's allowed to go up. Exodus, right? In Exodus, Exodus tells us that God did not allow the people to come into his presence. In fact, he warns them that they will die if they even try to, to go up and look into the presence of God. And so as Jesus invites the disciples up the mountain, what we're starting to see is a reverse of the curse of sin. 
we start to see that God is allowing people to come into his presence. And this happens through the mediator, Jesus Christ. So um, let's get into the, the content of the sermon here. This section of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, these first 12, chap- uh, first 12 verses here, they are commonly known as the Beatitudes. And, and what we see is that every statement in this section that Jesus makes, it begins with the word blessed, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed, blessed, blessed. So I want to begin by addressing what that word means. In our culture, uh, we have a lot of misunderstandings of this word. I'm probably guilty of misusing this word as well. Uh, In our culture, we say blessed when we perceive that things are going in our favor, right? Or, or we say it when life is going well. So, for example, you might say, God blessed me with a new job. I'm in a great mood. I feel blessed. I'm doing well in life. Generally, I'm blessed. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with any of that. Uh, but I want us to do, what I want us to do is I want to give us uh, an understanding of what a biblical perspective of this word means. So there's a pastor in the States, his name is Kent Hughes, and he writes this. He says, contrary to popular opinion, blessed does not mean happy, even though some translations have rendered it this way. Happiness is a subjective state, a feeling. But Jesus is not declaring how people feel. Rather, he's making an objective statement about what God thinks of them. Blessed is a positive judgment by God on the individual, that means to be approved or to find approval. So when God blesses us, he approves us. So in other words, being blessed has less to do with our financial, material, or emotional state of well-being and has more to do with our favor with God. Also, if we, if we look at those who Jesus declares blessed in these 12 verses, what we see is that few, if any of them, are described as being in any sort of positive circumstance, right? The poor in spirit, the meek, those who mourn, the persecuted. We would never dare to describe someone who's just gone through a death in the family as blessed, right? Nor would we look at the persecuted church around the world and say, ah, yes, these are truly the blessed ones. And yet Jesus declares that they are because they have received his favor. Um, In addition, if we look at the rewards for those who are blessed, none of them are rewards that will reach their fruition in this lifetime. We see that there will be glimpses, yes, but Jesus has eternity in mind, not just the now. So, for example, the meek inheriting the earth, the kingdom of heaven, comfort for those who mourn, these are not immediate rewards, They have the future in mind, a future in heaven with Jesus. And so the rewards are not based on present positive circumstances. What we see here then is that the way God views blessing is contrary to how we see blessing. And so what I want today is I want to look at is is a radically different way of being blessed. I want us to shift our mindset from I, am, I had a good day today, I'm blessed, to God's favor is upon those who are lowly, humble, obedient, merciful, and persecuted. And his reward will come to fruition in eternity with Jesus. That is what it means to be blessed. 
Let's look then at who Jesus says are blessed. Who does Jesus say are blessed? Verse 3, Jesus begins by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, let me start by saying what it is not. What it does not mean is being sad, right? It is not about being unhappy or, or downcast or dejected. This is not what Jesus is talking about here. Um, you might think of it this way, right? Those who are poor, they don't have much, right? Therefore, if you are poor in spirit, you do not have much spirit. You need your spirit renewed or refilled. You are needy for spiritual help. Um, to quote Kent Hughes again, he says, The sense is, blessed are those who are so desperately poor in their spiritual resources that they realize they must have help from outside sources. He says, poverty of spirit, then, is the personal acknowledgement of spiritual bankruptcy. So poor in spirit is to be desperate for spiritual help. What's the qualification of, uh, of this? You need you, you have to need, right? You must need. You must need help. So much of the world today has no need for Jesus, right? The world is good on its own. We have an abundance of pleasures, right? I bet you can't think of the last time that you were bored, right? There's no such thing as boredom anymore because we can find an, in, an infinite amount of entertainment just by scrolling through our phones. Why would we need Jesus, right? Even... Modern-day spirituality is nothing more than searching from something that is deep within yourself, right? Nothing is needed from the outside. You have all you need. You just need to find it from within. No need for Jesus. And so let me ask you here today, how much do you need Jesus? Um, this week, our family went to a friend's place for dinner. And these friends have a daughter who's Skylar's age. Um, Skylar, I hope you're okay telling me, with me telling this story. You don't have a say. You would have been in the back, but things have changed. Um, so <laughs> Skylar, Skylar was really excited to, to spend time with her friend. Um, one thing that she doesn't like, though, is, is when fun things have to end. I'm sure we can all relate. No one likes it when the fun has to end. Um, and so on the metro ride to their house... Melissa, my wife, and I, we had this conversation with her. We said, hey, you know, I know that you're excited right now, but we expect that you have a good attitude when we leave, right? Um, and, you know, we don't want you to, to have a meltdown when it's time to go home. And her response was reasonable, right? She said, um, she said okay, but sometimes I have a hard time when it's time to go, right? So I suggested to her, I said, hey, well, why don't we pray about this, Right? Why don't we ask God to help us with our attitude? And she said, I think I can do it, right? I don't need to pray. Um, and so sure enough, you know, we finish dinner and, and conversations and it's time to go. It's late and, and our seven-year-old daughter is tired and she's having a hard time having a good attitude about leaving. Kind of expected, right? Meltdown mode engages and she's crying all the way as we walk to the metro. And, and as we get to the metro and, and we're waiting for our train, um, 
uh, we have a teachable moment. This is, a, this is the teachable moment right here, right? I pick her up and I say, hey, do you remember our conversation from earlier, right? Remember how you thought you didn't need Jesus um, to help you to have a good attitude? And she has tears running down her face and she says to me, well, I needed him when it was time to go, but I didn't need him at his help at the beginning of the night when it was easy. <laughs> I'll pause for a minute. How many of you would say that's your attitude towards Jesus, right? I need him when it's tough, but I don't need him when it's easy. Let me ask us again, how much do you need Jesus? Oh, it is easy to say that we need him for the hard times. Church, do you need him for the easy times too? Or do you have this? How often are you poor in spirit? Because Christ says that the kingdom of heaven is for those who need him. Not just when it's tough, especially then, but all of the time. The kingdom of God is for those who need Jesus. First Thessalonians says, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Need Jesus all the time. That is the point of this. And you will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Let's look at the next one. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Again, what we see from the second beatitude is that the help must come from outside of yourself. You cannot pull comfort from yourself when you mourn. Loving yourself more won't heal the heart of someone who is mourning the death of, the love, of a loved one. Right? Comfort comes from needing something more. One thing to point out is that not all, all mourning is blessed by God, right? You do not have favor with God just because you mourn. Let me explain. At times, we may mourn over the wrong things. Um, the example here is 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel, Amnon mourned because his lust was not fulfilled by Tamar. Certainly, God's favor was not on Amnon just because he mourned. Right? All that to be said, the act of mourning simply does not give us favor with God. What then is a blessed form of mourning? How is God's favor on those who mourn? We see God's favor is on those who mourn over the things that God mourns over. One example that is safe to say is sin. Right? We know that God does not delight in sin. Rather, he mourns over it. It displeases God when we sin. Therefore, the sin of others, and particularly our own sin, should be mourned over. Right? Our sin should grieve us as it does God. That shows that we have the same heart as he does. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. If we grieve over our sin, we will be comforted, because one day it will be completely eradicated. One day God will rid the world completely of sin. There will be no death. There will be no disease. There will be no destruction. And those who have changed hearts to love the things that God loves will mourn no longer. They will be comforted because there will be sin no more. Next, Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What meekness uh, refers to uh, is gentleness. Right? Maybe more specifically, meekness refers to a controlled gentleness. What it does not refer to is passiveness. Right? In other words, gentleness does not equate uh, not caring or, or just being submissive. Right? 
I think Ephesians 4 captures this well, where it says, be angry and do not sin. So meek or gentle does not mean that we don't care about the injustices of the world. It means we don't sin in response to them. Think about the meekness of Christ. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus cares about injustice, as we're going to see here in a minute, yet he was gentle towards those who would oppress him. He gave up his earthly rights, refusing to use his authority for vengeance, not seeking retaliation, but showing patience and gentleness towards his enemies. This word meek, it appears 12 times in the Old Testament. Nearly every time it is used, it refers to how we ought to treat those who have sinned against us. Galatians 6 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness or meekness. Ephesians 4 says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness or meekness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. 2 Timothy 2 says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness or meekness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. So this is what real meekness looks like. It means forfeiting your rights when someone sins against you. And it means returning sin with gentleness. Jesus says the meek will inherit the earth. And I love what Charles Spurgeon says to this. He says, uh, they, the meek, they are ready to give up their portion in the earth. Therefore, it shall come back to them. The promise for the meek is that they will receive what they are willing to give up. Whatever their right to claim when sinned against, the respect and honor that they deserve that has been wrongly taken from them as a result of sin will come back to them in heaven. What has been taken from them will be returned for the meek will inherit the earth. So we are called to be like Jesus, meek to those who sin against us. And we see his gentleness, and yet Jesus was not passive about the injustices around him. And this brings us to the next beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Jesus healed those who were sick or injured, even at the disapproval of the religious leaders around him. He was not passive towards the injustices of others. He hungered for righteousness. After meeting the Samaritan woman at the well, something unthinkable for a Jewish man in that day to do, he told his disciples, he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus hungered for righteousness. I'm very familiar with what my hunger can make me do. Uh, maybe you are too. On Thursday this week, I was making dinner. Uh, nothing too fancy, right? Grocery day was coming up, and so uh, we had a little in the fridge, and, and I literally just threw you know, a couple of frozen pizzas in the oven. Um, but I was looking forward to them. I was really hungry. Um, ten minutes later, pizzas are done, and I'm ready to eat. 
And so I, I, I get uh, open the oven, I, I get ready to pull them out of the oven. I put my spatula under the first one, I take it over, out of the oven, and I lift it, go to lift it over the counter, and it hitches, hits the edge of the counter and it lands face down on the floor. I wish you could be able to see like how ridiculous that was. Just an entire pizza face down on the floor. Half of our dinner was gone, and I was so angry. And I'm not going to tell you what I said after that. But what I will say is that because I was hungry, I was quickly moved to anger. Right? I had a longing for physical food that when it was not met as I expected, I was moved to anger. And what Jesus is saying here is that God's favor is on those who hunger for righteousness. Have so much of hunger for righteousness that you will be moved towards it. That nothing else will satisfy because a hunger for righteousness satisfies the soul. Long for doing right and seeing right in this world. Hunger for it. Those who do will be satisfied. Jesus then says, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Showing mercy implies that some wrong has been done against you. If I say to my daughter, Skylar, I'm going to give you mercy... I didn't say that because she has just obeyed me. I said it because there has been something wrong committed against me. So similar to the beatitude about the meek, this one deals with our attitude when we have been sinned against. Right? When someone has sinned against us, how do we respond? Where meekness says, where, when reviled, I will not revile in return. When I've been wronged, I will not wrong in return. Mercy says, when wronged, I will bless in return. I will show compassion and mercy when when wronged. Jesus tells a a parable in Matthew chapter 18 of the unmerciful servant. Some of you might be familiar with this. Uh, If not, this is what it's about. The story is of a servant who owes his money, he owes his master money. And the master comes to collect, but the servant is unable to pay. He owes way too much money. It says he owes 10,000 talents. I'm not even sure how much that is, but it sounds like a lot. Um, and so he, because he is unable to pay, he pleads to the master, right? He's, he begs him for forgiveness. And what does the master do? He graciously agrees to forgive his debt. The servant, uh, he's then released. And immediately what he does is he goes and finds someone that owes him money. This person owed significantly less than what he owed the master, But when he is unable to pay, he throws him in prison. And when the master finds out about this, he responds by saying, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And he throws him in jail till he could pay his debt. When you have seen the debt that you have been forgiven by God, you will forgive others. When you see the mercy that you have been shown for all the sin that you have committed against the Almighty God, you will forgive those who sin against you. And on the other hand, if you will not forgive, if you have no compassion or mercy towards those who sin against you, then you do not understand what has been done for you, and and, and then you may not be a Christian. And that may sound harsh, but Jesus says the favor of God is on the merciful. They are the ones who will receive mercy. In verse 8, he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, 
for they shall see God. What does it mean to be pure in heart? Well, when we think of something that is pure, what do we mean by that? Clean. We mean clean, yeah. We mean that it is, it is just that one thing, right? It is not mixed with anything else. A good image to think of here is gold, right? What is pure gold? It is simply just gold. It is not mixed with anything else. It has been removed of all of its impurities. Pure gold is gold that has been refined. It has been heated to the point where nothing else can survive on it. And the only thing that exists is gold itself, right? So a pure heart then is, has been removed of all of its impurities. It is not mixed with other idols, unhealthy pleasures, selfish motives. A pure heart is set solely on what is untainted, and that is God. Jesus says the pure in heart, those who have God only on their hearts, they are the ones who will see him. And so if we want to see God, we must set our hearts solely on him. Next, Jesus tells us, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. What is the role of, of a peacemaker? A peacemaker resolves enmity between two parties, right? A peacemaker seeks out where tension exists in order to mend relationships. A peacemaker doesn't avoid conflict, assuming it'll just go away. A peacemaker actively seeks to unite uh, parties that are at odds with one another. In, in university, I had this amazing professor, and uh, I had the privilege of being his teaching assistant in one of his classes, which was about uh, group development. So how, how do groups develop? And so I facilitated a uh, discussion with a group of eight other people. Uh, their job was to work on this project together, uh, but what he told me to do, he said, look for the tension in the group uh, between one another and walk towards that. He says, look, look at where the tension is and walk towards that. That's what he would always tell me. Find the tension and walk towards that. And the reason was because nothing gets better when you just ignore things and pretend that there's not a problem, right? In fact, things get worse. If there's tension, it's likely because something needs to be resolved. So walk towards it. That's what peacemakers do. They seek to make peace between two parties. And they will be called sons of God because that's what the Son of God came to do. Jesus came to us to make peace where we were at war. He walked towards the tension of our rebellion against God and he came to mediate. He stands between us and God as the only way to make peace with the Father. As fully man, he is able to represent us as humans and as fully divine, he represents God. And so as Jesus says, the peacemakers have found favor with God. And finally, Jesus says, the, per uh, the persecuted for righteousness have found favor with God. They are blessed. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. He says, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The final beatitude reminds us that those who follow Jesus will be persecuted. 
let me ask you here today, is this what you expect from the Christian life? In my spare time, I've been reading through a, a book called, by John Piper called Let the Nations Be Glad. I would highly recommend it. It is a book about Christian missions, and yet he dedicates an entire chapter to the, suffer, to the suffering of followers of Christ. I want to read a little bit for us today. He writes this. He says, it would be easy to make a superficial mistake about the death of Christ as a substitutionary, as a substitutionary atonement. He says, the, the mistake would be to say that since Christ died for me, I don't need to die for others. Since he suffered for me, I don't need to suffer for others. In other words, his death is really substitution. If his death is really substitutionary, shouldn't I escape what he bore for me? How can his death be a call for my death if his death took place of my death? The answer is that Christ died for us so that we would not have to die for sin, not so that we would not have to die for others. Christ bore the punishment of our sins so that our death and suffering are never punishment from God. The call to suffer with Christ is not a call to bear our sins the way he bore them, but to love the way he loved. The death of Christ for the sin of my selfishness is not meant to help me escape the suffering of love, but to enable it. Because he took my guilt and my punishment and reconciled me to God as my father, I do not need to cling to any uh, comforts of, of earth in order to be content. I am free to let things go for the sake of making the supremacy of God's worth known. Persecution and suffering are promised in this life for those who follow Jesus. It may be physical, it may be ridicule, but Jesus reminds us that those who are persecuted for his sake are blessed. They have found favor with God. Theirs is the kingdom of God, and therefore they can rejoice. As we wrap up here, what we see is that the Beatitudes reveal the beautiful design for God's kingdom. We see God's approval for what the world rejects. God's favor is for those who need him, who mourn at their sin, who are meek, who hunger for righteousness, are merciful, pure in heart, the peacemakers and the persecuted for the sake of righteousness. The picture is a beautiful kingdom where Jesus reigns. And yet what we also see is our utter insufficiency for us to meet these qualifications. Right? If we are honest with ourselves, rather than being poor in spirit, we act as though we don't need God. Rather than mourn over our sin, we indulge in it. Rather than being gentle and meek, we lash at the, out at those who offend us. We neglect caring for the injustices of others. We are vengeful, have impure hearts. We are often the aggressors and the persecutors. All of us are born into the kingdom of this world, and we naturally live for it. And so are any of us blessed? Who has found favor with God? Well, what we see is blessed is Jesus, for he is all of these. The favor of the Lord is upon Jesus, for he mourns over sin. He is gentle to his oppressors. He hungers for righteousness. He is merciful and pure in heart the true peacemaker, and the one who was persecuted for our sake. So blessed be Jesus and anyone 
who comes to the Father through his name. For it is the only name on heaven and earth which we are saved. Let's close in prayer. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Renaissance Church. If you have any questions about the sermon or would like to know more, please feel free to contact us by email at renaissance.mtl.gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. It's our passion to love Jesus, love each other, and love our world.